So I know you probably came for the discussion, the panel about military families and couples, but we decided we'd do karaoke instead. What do you think? <laughs> we got a bar. Please welcome, uh, welcome to the discussion tonight. Feel free to, to have a drink, to relax. It's, it's a very intimate setting, and uh, I'm very privileged to be a part of this evening. I'm Suzanne Malvo. I'm with CNN, and I've had uh, the privilege to meet this lovely couple that we're going to be uh, featuring this evening and talking about uh, life in the military. General Stanley McChrystal, Annie McChrystal uh, have joined us this evening and are giving us uh, their time to talk a little bit about this subject. Uh, First of all, I want to just tell them they don't need any introduction, but I would like to give them a proper introduction. Uh, General Stanley McChrystal, as you know, he is a four-star general. He retired from the U.S. Army. He commanded the Elite Special Operations Unit, Uh, in Iraq and was the head of the U.S. mission in Afghanistan. Uh, He is currently teaching a leadership in operation class, a seminar session at Yale University. Annie McChrystal. She is also part of the McChrystal Group. Uh, The two of them uh, co-founded this organization. She has been working for more than three decades uh, with military families, helping them deploy. She has uh, really been in the the fight in the trenches uh, since the very beginning. She's also a former professor at Troy State University and St. Leo College, and she's a former admissions officer at Harvard Kennedy School of Government. So if we could just give them a round of applause. (laughs) So that's who they are as individuals. I want to tell you a little bit about who they are as a a couple. They met in uh, 1973 at West Point, I believe when you were attending West Point and got married four years later, and they have been together for 35 years. We will ask them what their uh, magic formula is to to keeping together uh, that long. But I want to start off by asking both of you first, uh, just tell us a little bit about when you first met each other. What what were your first impressions? Did you think this was the one? (laughs) Annie, you want to start? Yeah, my first impression was I'm not going to start dating a West Point cadet and marrying in the military. (laughs) I grew up in the military, loved it. It was a great way of life. My father is a career soldier. My mother was an army wife raising six kids. But I wanted to go off to school and go to D.C. and have a career. And as Stan laughingly told me when he moved me to D.C. 31 years later, look, you're in D.C. and you have a career. What are you complaining about? So... (laughs) This is a source of a lot of fights we have because <laughs> I, I went home from West Point uh, to Fort Hood, Texas, where her father was stationed and my father was stationed, and Annie went home from college, and we met on a night when the, the people in the neighborhood put together one of these you know, informal parties, and I don't remember meeting her. And oh, that's not good. <laughs> I said, well, I, I met her the next night again, and it stuck. And, uh, it stuck ever since, so... Uh, let's talk a little bit about military families because we know that uh, we have been at war for more than a decade now, and 1% of our population are the military families who are actually fighting, who are actually uh, carrying the burden of being in war, in combat. Describe for me what, what are some of the burdens, what are the things that military families face that perhaps others of us don't understand? Well, I think it's a, it's a way of life that I think a lot of people don't quite understand the way we live. But it's a good life. It's a life that we're very proud of and we embrace it. You marry a soldier because you fall in love. 
then you embrace the lifestyle once, you, once you're in the, um, I think back to my mother, my father is a career soldier, so again, it was a little bit easier for me because I knew what I was getting into, but her first set of quarters was a Quonset hut at Fort, Fort Camp Pickett? Camp Pickett. Pickett. Mm -hmm. And the, they were so close together that when the service member would leave and they were ready to gather for coffee, she would take a broom and she would hit the next Quonset hut, <laughs> then they would hit the next one, and that was the call, let's all gather for coffee. And then um, years later, when I was in high school and my father was leaving for a tour in Vietnam, and there were six of us were living in military quarters, you had 30 days to get out of your quarters. And the military really didn't care where you went. Um, but you left your, your, um, your quarters. We've come so far from there, um, taking care of our military. Um, we house them very well. We, when we went with private companies uh, with our, um, on our military bases, we were able to build more quarters and build nice quarters. That's the good part of our life now. The other good part is I think our country has embraced our military. I am so proud of everyone out here and everyone in this country and how they've treated our military. Whether you're tired of the war or weary of the war, the care and concern you've shown for our military is great. Now, living conditions better, we've still been at war a long time, our military is weary. They have the same burdens and concerns that most of you have. Number one, our children, the education of our children. But it's a little bit harder for military families because we move them a lot. We move to normally small towns. Most times the military kids are assigned to the worst school in the district. And private schools are usually not an option. So if you ask military families, our number one thing is housing, which we always said, don't talk housing with military families because it's always this you know, you know, thing with housing, which we've done very well with, but educating our children and the, the, the long deployments, I think. What would you say? Steve? Yeah, I would say education is one of the huge ones. Our son went to three high schools in his period, Brooklyn and uh, Georgia and North Carolina. And, and it didn't hurt him because he glided through Florida State in seven years, so uh, it, it, it went pretty well. But, uh, but one thing to, to hit your point, Suzanne, about this is a unique period because we started a volunteer army in 1972, and that changed the model of our force pretty significantly. And then we went into a war that has been a decade long. You, you've never done that in the United States before. You've never fought an extended war with an all-volunteer military. So what it means is you've got a fairly small population that you're going to, and you're going to them over and over again. Not just the active service, but the reservists as well, because we've gone to some of them for three and four tours as well. So it's a completely new dynamic. The other dynamic that's different is because it's less than 1% of the population, even during the Vietnam War, more families were touched by it so when you were going through this, more people were sensitive to it. Nowadays, because it's fairly contained in a small group, people are very supportive, but they don't have the same connection with it. They're not quite as aware of it. And so the military, on the downside, there's a danger we get too insular. We draw into ourselves and you sort of look to each other. Does it make you feel a little isolated from the rest of the community? I think we are isolated, but I wasn't aware of it when I was growing up in the military and then living in the military with Stan, um, we are a little bit insular. And partially that is good in some respects because we live on the base for the most part and we kind of take care of each other for the most part. But it does keep you a little bit um, 
isolated from the rest of the country. Annie, tell me about the first time that Stanley left, that he had to go to war. With that. What was that like? <laughs> the first time um, was kind of interesting. It was Desert Storm, 1990. Yeah. And uh, he was in a special operations unit at the time. And he kept telling me, you know, I, I may go to work one day and then just not come home. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, and, you know, <laughs> heading off doing this. And sure enough, I mean, because the war had started and they hadn't gone. And then it was to the point, you want them to go. One thing, our military wives were very proud, we, we were very proud of our service member. And when there's a fight on, you almost feel like, okay, you got to go. Plus, you can't live with them if there's a fight on <laughs> yeah. in their back. So, you know, I'm waiting for him to go. And sure enough, I mean, I come home from work one day and our son's home and Stan doesn't show up for dinner. And I still didn't think anything of it because, of, you know, planning and then the night comes he doesn't show up the next morning I'm thinking damn he might be gone and I remember he called a friend of mine who I was hanging out with and he was looking for me no cell phones in those days and and he said is Annie there and she's like no and he said well tell her I love her and she, and I, she told me that I'm like he's gone you know wow. so but our son was about six then and I went in he's watching tv before school and I said Sam I have to talk to you dad's gone and he said, okay, and he went back to the TV, and I said, well, he's going to be gone a long time, and he's like, okay, and went back to the TV, and I said, Sam, do you understand what I'm trying to say? And he looked at me, and he said, mom, dad's gone, he's at war, and he'll be back later, and went right back to the TV, and I thought, I was proud, he's a military child, and so that was my first experience with Stan being gone. In those days, we didn't think of it as a long war, we didn't know how long it would be, it was different than it is now. I remember I didn't come home for dinner that night, and she's using the excuse she's never cooked dinner since because I might not show up. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> what was that like for you, Stanley? Um, you know, it's funny because, as Annie described, there was this buildup to Desert Storm, uh, Desert Shield initially, and Desert Storm, and I was in this unit, that very specialized unit, neat people, but we didn't go. And a whole bunch of other people went, and suddenly we were on the bench, and we're thinking, what is wrong with us? And our great fear is that we're not going to go. And it created great angst. And then suddenly they decide, nope, you're going. And so there was this, there was probably a feeling of relief. You want to do what you do. I mean, you don't want to be on the sidelines. But at the same time, when you leave, it, you don't know how long it's going to be. You don't know when you're going to come home. You would have liked to say goodbye. Um, although, in some ways, you will, by avoiding the goodbye, that's a little easier. But, but it's, a, it's a strange kind of feeling. And that one was more open-ended. The ones now, for the most part, the family member knows the length of time they'll be gone. They are basically told. And sometimes they're surprised, like Alaska, when they yeah. were extended for that extra three months, literally as they were coming home. That's tough on families because they do start a countdown once they leave. And how long were you gone for that deployment? The first one was three months. So yeah, it was, we went about a month before the then war, the war stayed through and then came home. So it wasn't... Too bad. And how is it different now when you talk about communicating with each yeah. other? Uh, the fact that you were gone for that time, you didn't have cell phones, you yeah. weren't able to. How is it different today? Our, well, our first uh, set long separation, I was in Korea back. It wasn't in war in 81, 82. I wrote every night. We didn't speak on the phone the whole year. And so it was a year. Um, nowadays, you have the opportunity. Every soldier's got cell phone, they got Skype, they got computers, just even at pretty remote bases, they have them. And it allows them to stay connected. But there is a downside to that as well. And Annie and I talk about it a lot. 
when the soldier can stay that connected, if the refrigerator breaks or if the child gets sick, the soldier's involved. And, and that is hard. You're, you're a long way away, you can't do anything, but suddenly you are in real time going through the kinds of challenges your spouse is going through. And so in some ways there's a downside to that as well. And I think it makes a little more stress on soldiers actually. But the upside is for those um, service members that have young children yeah. that can Skype with the young children and still be involved in their children's lives and activities. That's the real upside of the communication now for our military families. What was it like for your son Sam as his father kept getting deployed and being sent away. Did it become harder for him or did it become easier? We were lucky because um, um, when 9-11 happened, our son was a senior in high school. Stan left um, right after, the, he did graduate that year. He's looking at me like, yeah, <laughs> seven years of college. I say it was five and a half, but anyway. <laughs> we, who, who was paying? That, I guess <laughs> but, um, but in some respects, it's a little bit easier. He, Stan missed the last part of his senior year of high school, and then he headed off to college. But when you... Um, when your children are off in college, like I was when my father was in Vietnam, you miss them and you worry about them, but you're also thinking, what are we going to do on Friday night? It's the um, families, that the ones that are left back with children. It's When, when I was left with a, a son the first time, I thought it was the, the best thing because it, it gives you something to occupy yourself with, but I think the long deployments were easier for me, having a son in college on his own, so I could then concentrate on what I felt I needed to. In you you got to know our son, too. He's <laughs> 28 now, and he was 17. He was about to graduate from high school, and I get deployed to uh, Afghanistan spring of 2002. So we get ready to go, and that morning I put on my desert fatigues, and we're going to go get on the plane. And so Sam's going to go to school, so I said, okay, Sam, I'm out of here. And he goes, well, when are you coming home? And I said, well, I don't know. You know, it, it, this could be a long time. I guess whenever we, you know, defeat the enemy, I'll be back. He says, okay, and he went off. I went, the plane broke, and so they delayed us for 24 hours at Fort Bragg, so I got home that night. <laughs> and War so, over. <laughs> yeah, I see Sam, and he goes, that didn't take that long. <laughs> uh, tell, me, tell me about uh, your relationship with your, with your son. Uh, do, do you feel at times missing the birthdays, yeah. missing the holidays, that that has an impact on your relationship? Um, my son and I are very close now. He lives a block away. We lift weights every morning together and, and whatnot. He's an, a counterterrorism analyst in the intelligence community. Who never thought he'd get there, but, he, but that's what he does. Yeah, um, it was funny. In the early years of the military, it's probably like any business where you're really working hard. Even in peacetime, we're working huge hours. We're deploying on training. And I wasn't there as much as I wanted to be, and I, I regret a lot of that. Later in my career, because we really started having the wars that affected me in the second half of my career, and I was gone, um, he and I stayed very close, but I, I missed his high school graduation. I missed all of his college, all seven years of it. Uh, I missed so many things, and I watched him go through parts of life, like you know, we, we joke about this. I took him to see the Secretary General of the UN, and at that point, Sam was in high school and had blue hair. And so I take him to see Kofi Annan, and I go, hey, you in blue. <laughs> I don't think the Secretary General had ever seen anything like that. Um, but we stayed close, even though you know he was himself and I was myself. And what we found is uh, we never went through those big periods with fighting or problems. We just sort of let each other be. 
each other, and now we've sort of, as Annie says, we're so alike now, it's frightening. Scary. <laughs> Annie, talk a little bit about the times. Uh, sometimes you read about military couples and, and families. The period where you reunite, where Stanley's been gone for a while, and then he's back home. Mm -hmm. What is that like to readjust? I mean, does, does the dog bite him because he doesn't recognize he's the guy who's, <laughs> this is his the house. Wife bites <laughs> yeah, the wife bites him. <laughs> I think Stan and I surprisingly did very well with um, the longest period of time he was gone was five years. And I never knew when I would see him. I think the longest stretch was, I think, seven, seven months or so. And then I would get a call, okay, I'm going to be in D.C. for a few days or I'm coming to Bragg for a few days. For the most part, we adapted very well, but I think partially it was because long before the wars, he was in units like the Rangers that tended to be gone more, so we had already adapted to that kind of pattern. I think for a lot of our military families, it is a little bit of a struggle because when the um, service member is gone, we really pride ourselves on becoming very independent. We raise our children pretty much alone. We make decisions on our, on our own, and then the spouse comes back, they naturally want to be part of that decision-making process because they miss it, and that reconnects them. And then the, the spouse back here it, it wants to still stay in charge. And I don't think we encountered that as much because we just, you know, kind of fell right back into a pattern. When he did come back, I was telling someone this the other day, though, when he came back two years ago and retired, he came back, our son moved to D.C. with his now wife, Kat U-Haul, all at the same time. And there was a period of time where I wanted to snap off anybody's head. And I think it was me realizing I've been alone for almost 10 years. And now I've got everyone, what's for dinner tonight? And what are we going to do today? I was like, yeah. So, but for the most part, I think the adjustment for our, our regular family members is the independence we want them to have. And then that we take a back a little bit when the service member comes back. you got to figure that out. And, and how did you figure that out, where your place was in the family? <laughs> uh, he knows. Figured that out pretty quick. <laughs> There's a chain of command, and I was way down there. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's interesting, though. One of the effects I found it had on me, and I think it had on a lot of my peers of every rank, you know, you're over there, particularly when you're at war, you push away a lot of bureaucracy in war. You just get things done, and you actually like that. That's if you ask soldiers whether they prefer wartime or peacetime, they don't like the war part, but they like being free of bureaucracy, and you really do have that, and particularly young people in you know, very small areas. It's very different than if you're on a big military base and everybody's telling you what to do. But because of that, you get very impatient with limitations. So you come home and you think, the world owes me something. I've been gone a while, I've been doing this. I should never have to wait in line. Nobody should tell me i got to come back next Tuesday. Um, there are just a lot of things, and I found all of us have to, to adjust to that because the world works a certain way, and you just don't get to, to drive outside the lines all the time. And I think that, that affects a lot of them. So the two of you adjusted very well to those changes. We know a lot of the soldiers who come back, service men and women, don't adjust very well and have problems because of it. How do you suppose that you were spared from, from some of the more difficult uh, demons that, that some of the service members face? Yeah, let me take that because first, we were very, very lucky. Uh, I'd grown up in the military and he'd grown up in the military. By the time we went through the very tough years, we were older. We, we'd been uh, seasoned. Uh, I used to write letters to the, the families of all the fallen and the next of kin, and, and at least half the letters I wrote were to the parents in separate locations. 
I wrote 10 letters just in my year in Afghanistan to parents in prison. And so the next of kin of someone who's been killed. So I'm suddenly getting a picture that you think of the Norman Rockwell coming home. And I sort of experience that. I have a loving wife and, and this sort of thing. You go home back to maybe not the same kind of nurturing environment. You don't necessarily have a job to go to if, if you're leaving the service. You may not have a lot of connections. Your peers may have moved on because they've spent that time developing connections. You may not have a real supportive family life. Um, it, it puts pressures on people that I think accentuate the pressures they've already had in combat. It may not be PTSD, but it could be just you know the stresses you go through it. And at certain ages in life, you go through stresses. And you come back, and there's not that safety net at home. And I'm not talking about the government safety net. I'm talking about the community is not necessarily there for you. And I think that's really hard. And we, of course, being career military, we were spared so much of that. And, uh, and I'm really in awe of the young people who come back, and some wounded as well, and go into that same challenge, yet with even bigger Annie, you want to talk a little bit about what it's like, the new normal for some of those wounded yeah. soldiers who come back and their families in particular who face some, some very daunting challenges. It is. There are, there's so many challenges to our families coming back, but especially our wounded. Stan and I were in St. Louis recently for an event supporting our wounded service members, and we met this amazing couple that really put it in perspective. They were from a small town in Missouri, and he had wanted to join the military and make it a career and he came back home a couple years later to marry his high school sweetheart and then they were off assigned to Vicenza, Italy. Can you imagine, you know, leaving a small farm and you're assigned to Vicenza? And she just embraced life in the military and that unit was sent to Afghanistan and um, he came back, he re-enlisted, so would he have been in three years when he re-enlisted? They went back to Afghanistan and about three months into his re-enlistment he was wounded and he was re, um, recuperating at the hospital there in Missouri when we met them. And it was life-changing for them because she was going to school in Vicenza, had really embraced this life, thought they would be in it for 20 years. Now they're back. She can't use his GI Bill because you have to be in the service six years with the promise of staying in four more before you can transfer your GI Bill to your spouse or your children, which is actually a great thing that we've done, but it, it, it stopped them from being able to use it. He doesn't know what he's going to do now. He was leaving the service but really wasn't sure what he wanted to do. So they had so many things to figure out because it was a lifestyle that they were losing. Um, so you, you really do have to look not only employment for them but for their spouse, their spouse's aspirations and you know, what you can do for them. When, when we were a bit younger, I was a battalion commander. Our, the unit Andy and I were in had a grievous accident. I, at Pope Air Force Base, and 21 of the members of my battalion were killed, and 40 more were very badly injured, most of them burned, uh, and also a number of limbs lost. And it was the first time in my career we'd gone through something that traumatic suddenly. And the thing that really struck me, and Annie and I went through this, uh, although it was peacetime, it was this completely unexpected shock, and yet suddenly young wives, some 18 and 19 years old, would go in and some of them would either deal with the loss of their spouse or they would actually get to see their spouse in the process of dying because some of these, uh, one guy took 10 months uh, 
to actually pass. But then others would go in and they'd see their spouse who was badly injured, having lost limbs or disfigured from burns. And you feel bad for the service member, but suddenly 19 or 20 year old spouse, they'd met someone, fallen in love, and suddenly the person they fell in love with is radically changed. It doesn't mean they don't want them, but it means their life together is not gonna be what they expected it to be. And I think we live that every day with wounded now. So the wound is not just hard on the person wounded. It's extraordinarily hard because it changes the direction of the whole family. And if you got kids, it changes the direction because the kids, how do you deal with the fact mother or father has been uh, tremendously impacted by this and you feel for them. So it's, it's another factor. Do those marriages typically survive? Do those families stay together? Uh, yeah. I would say yes, they do. Um, for the most part. And if you go, we were just up in Gettysburg with some of our um, wounded service members and their families from Walter Reed, just a, a day outing. Um, and Stan will use any excuse to go to Gettysburg. He'll go, you know. But it was a wonderful thing. And the time that I spend with some of our service members and their families at Walter Reed, you really see the strength. And I think the, the same thing that a, a military spouse is so proud of their soldier, they really stand behind them. Now, long term, we don't know the long-term effects of these wars, but I would say right now from what I see when I go to Bethesda and Walter Reed and on these outings, the strength of the spouses is unbelievable. The so. marriages I see most strained, actually, in our peers and whatnot are uh, senior NCOs and officers who had four and five tours, and it just, it does a couple things. One, it's the strains, and it's the other thing, and I think you see it in other walks of life. You're apart so much that it's, it's hard to have a marriage if you're not together at least critical mass of time. And, and we see that being an effect on a lot of them, and that's, that's tough. I think also, too, because of the long deployments, um, I call it the breakup of the military family to a certain degree, which I hate to see, but you get your children in school and then the spouse comes home and then he gets orders for someplace else and you want to stabilize your children. I hate to see it from the standpoint of Stan and I grew up in the military where we moved a lot, our son moved a lot, and I think that's part of the strength and pride in being a military child. On the other hand, all of us are concerned about the education of our children, and so that's going to be a factor. Do they have studies or information about whether or not there's a certain number of deployments and it, you reach a threshold and you realize that's going to break apart a family or a certain amount of time that you're away and you realize that family's not going to survive? I don't know how valid the current studies are because I think we're going in uncharted territory. And the reason I say uncharted, we've never done this long with a professional force this many tours before. And so I think every year it's, it's sort of new data that's going to redefine where we are. My father, you know, as a career soldier, used to tell me that in Vietnam you lost people during their second combat tour. They went on their first tour, they came back for a couple of years, they went on their second tour, and during the second tour they made the decision to separate from the Army because they were now away again. It wasn't new and different to be at war, and they could see the horizon, a third and a fourth tour. And so they made the decision, okay, we just, we do see some of that anecdotally, and I, I can't quote you hard data, but, but we do see young officers and mid-grade NCOs, as long as there's no end in sight, that's a very hard uh, future to face, and they're, they're putting their wives and kids through it. 
And so I think that's, I think the data will probably bear that out, although I can't quote it right now. Mm -hmm. you, you were in special ops, and, and that's very secretive. Is, was that hard that you weren't even able to communicate with your wife what it was that you were doing, what your life was like? Um, it was because you want to, you want your spouse and kids to have, be proud of you. So you'd like them to know everything and you want them to have faith that what you're doing is the right thing. You want the validation of that. On the other hand, because it was a very tight community who tended to stay in there, there was also a lot of support across the community. I, I served with privates that had been privates when I was a lieutenant or captain were sergeants major with me 30 years later. So you had a lot of really long-term relationships which helped with that. We've tried to change it for the family members too. When Stan was in Desert Storm with a special operations unit, the family members were left out of everything. And you're, you're in a unit like the 82nd, we have a young service member here who served in the 82nd, one of our favorite, favorite places. Um, and, and for us, you know, we were watching those spouses getting to communicate with their, their service members and yellow ribbons when they came home. And we were so isolated from that. We were told nothing. We weren't allowed to gather together. We were actually told we couldn't tell anyone that they were deployed, you know, just that they're just gone. So we've come a long way since then. And um, the last time when Sam's in special operations, we informed the families a little bit more. And we, nothing classified, but enough to make them very proud of the unique situation that their service member is in and tell them enough to teach them why, why you shouldn't say much more. And what you're asking for, and we had a ranger sergeant killed last summer, and uh, he was killed on his 14th deployment. Now, in the rangers, they went for three-month deployments. That's not 14 yet, it's 14 three-month deployments. But he'd entered the rangers right after 9-11 and he was a platoon sergeant, a sergeant first class. So his whole career had been at war. He had been gone three months of every nine, one third of the time, the whole time. He had gotten married during that period, had two kids, and was killed on the 14th one of those. And I tried to wrap my own mind around that because he never had a peacetime experience in the military, nor did his, his spouse. So I, I think it's a different it's a kind of pressure that maybe I can't even appreciate firsthand. You've both dealt with uh, servicemen and, and, and women, and uh, we hear the statistics all the time now about the, the high suicide rate uh, even being more so uh, higher than, than those in, in active combat. Can, can you explain the difference between people who are capable and able to handle the kind of stress yeah. uh, and, and those who just uh, are not? It's, uh, yeah, it's a great question. One, it's very worrying because in the military, traditionally, you've got a young population which is a high suicide risk in the civilian world. And, but yet you are in cohesive organizations where support and supervision from people can lower that. And that's been traditional. The last few years, that has not been successful. The suicide rate has been frighteningly high. We're trying to, there's been a lot of studies to try to say, is it the combat that does it? Although a lot of the suicides happen back in the US. Um, and, and I think it's not entirely clear. I think the pressures of it add to it, but the actual precipitant in many cases is things in their personal lives, either financial or, or relationship wise. The scary part of it, it's a little bit of, um, it's contagious at times. If you see suicides in an organization, it kind of gets other people who might be frustrated with life and it 
it gives them that idea. The key, you can, you can pick people out who are becoming loners. You can pick people out who are becoming withdrawn. Uh, and it's typically the younger soldiers, again, who don't have as strong a relationships. And, and that's what you don't want to do. You never want a private going back to his room and sort of cocooning by himself. It's really uh, strange. But we've also seen it in cases where people, would have, I would have said, were doing just fine, and I would have never predicted it. And then suddenly uh, something occurs, and not always a single precipitant event. Sandy, do you want to weigh in? Is there other things that you think that people need uh, in, in working with families and talking to families that they, they can get some strength from, some guidance, some leadership in some way? I think for our military families, like Stan said, one of the things is with the open communication. Um, it's, it's great, but it can also be a detriment for the service member who might worry about his family. I think for the, for the family back here, it will help the service member if they don't have to worry about their family. Um, and if they feel that their country's behind them and there's a sense of purpose for what they're doing. I think also with the suicide rate in the military, which is extremely high, unfortunately I think it's high in, in society now. And so I think we're just a small part of society which keeps the, the numbers, numbers high. How, how do you get through 35 years of marriage? One day at a time. <laughs> <laughs> my, friends, my, my friends on the civilian side would say, well, you're so happily married because you haven't been together most of those 35 years. That, that separation thing works <laughs> yeah. sometimes, too, yeah. Yeah, we, we had a, uh, of course, we love each other a lot, which is, helps. <laughs> that helps. Um, but we also worked at it really hard, and we, we were blessed with a lot of friends. We, I was in... The units I was in, I had good role models for commanders. I had good couple models, you know, that, that were supportive, supportive around us. And I think it, there were times it would be easier not to be married, particularly as a soldier, because you wouldn't have to think about stuff. You'd be sort of free. But it would be much weaker. And so it, it just took a lot of work. I, I think that's true in any business, but I've never been in it. I think with any marriage, it's a lot of work. You know, um, people would sometimes say to us, oh, you, just, you have the best marriage, kind of like it's just so easy and so pat. But I think it, you have to constantly work on it, especially when you are separated a lot. I think, to Stan's credit, um, I think he always made me feel a part of his life, no matter where he was. And that was hugely, hugely important. And when we were apart all of those years, we used email. And because he was in a unit that our everything was classified, we had to be so careful with what we wrote. But we still managed to share everything. I remember um, he was primarily stationed in Iraq, but would go to Afghanistan and Pakistan and would always give me clues. Like if he was going to Afghanistan and Pakistan, the communication wouldn't be as good. And he'd say, I'm going to go visit John because he knew I knew this person, John, in Pakistan. Well, when he was there so many years and John was long gone and now it was, you know, Tim and whatever, I didn't know. But all I knew is if he said he was going to visit someone, I might not hear from him for a while. But I think the communication really, really did help a lot. Do you mind if we open up the uh, floor for would. questions from yes. the audience? Sure. Go ahead.
Um, I, I'm trying to remember that darling of the media period. That was that was one afternoon. Uh, no, I was in special ops for a while, so I was actually shielded from it, and so I didn't have much media coverage. There'd be a little story that says he's off doing something, but nobody was really scrutinizing my life. And it wasn't until I went to take Afghanistan when suddenly I had to be in the media because we had to build support for the war. This was already an unpopular war, and so we had to change people's perceptions of the war. So much against my, my desires, we did 60 minutes, and we did some things. I mean, I, I had people had to twist my arms because I knew that's going to make you vulnerable. Um, once that started, because it was new for me, uh, a new experience, it was... Uh, it was probably frustrating might be the right term because what happens is you are free game for anybody to write whatever they please and it's one thing for them to write you know policy disagreements it's another to write with sort of a casual cruelty or a casual snarkiness about things they really may not have researched very well or don't know and that's very difficult um, when that sort of stuff starts and you know some of it is you know, people just have a certain opinion or whatever. Um, you really hate to see it because, you know, my father's 80-some years old, and he's seeing it. I know it's upsetting him. Um, I know I don't like Annie to read things about me that, you know, aren't what I want to be. And so it's really difficult. You, your first reaction is to just say, fine, we're just not going to deal with the press. But you can't generalize because, one, all the press is not that way. They're like any other group of people. And second, you need to communicate. So you've got to get out there, and you've got you to deal with it, and you've got to learn. I'd love to say you get absolutely hardened to it, but you don't. Um, anybody who tells me, and, and people did all the time, they'd say, hey, just shake it off. You know, don't, don't pay any attention to what people write about you in the press. has probably never been written about that way. Uh, <laughs> And so you do get a little bit thicker skin, but it never becomes something that you're entirely comfortable with, particularly if it's wrong. It's one thing if somebody says, I'm stupid, okay, got that, you know, admit it. But if somebody writes things that, that are just ill-informed or so twisted and you really can't fix them, it creates a lot of frustration. It's, uh, it's hard to do, particularly because you... In the military, you, it's not like you're a someone who wants to be a celebrity. Seek celebrity because it it's got a purpose. We don't do that in the military intentionally. At least I didn't. And so when it's when it's a uh, byproduct, it's a little bit of uh, disorienting. Any of you? Yeah, it's obviously very hard on the family members um, when they're in the press negatively, partially because you know enough of the truth. And, and most of the times when Stan was in the um, paper negatively, there, it was things that I was aware of and knew enough of the truth to know what wasn't true in the paper. And you want to just shout or, you know, just scream, this, this isn't true. And you realize your hands are tied and that, that defensive, you know, feeling and defenselessness that you can't get out there and say something is it's very very frustrating and like Stan said you know you have to shake it off 
I, you could never really shake it off. What I learned is I had a strength and resolve that I could move beyond it because otherwise it would eat at you the minute you see someone that you truly love, especially when you see someone that um, has served you know, so many years and you're seeing them get knocked down. It's very, very hard, but I never let it get to me. Never mm -hmm. cried a tear over it. I just got a steely resolve because I know the truth. One thing I will say when Stan um, came home and retired um, two years ago, when you live this kind of life in the military and you embrace it, the community around you, the strength that they just embraced us, and not just the military community. I was amazed by the letters and um, emails, and Stan's not on Facebook, although there's five or six Stanley Crystal <laughs> Facebook pages, but they're, none are him, but I am, and I must have had thousands of people contact me on Facebook to say how proud they were of Stan. That really was amazing and really, really was nice. I never thought people reaching out that I didn't even know but saying something really did help. And it, it, it assuages some of the press that you, you hear. I got one email that my favorite three privates in Afghanistan at a small operating base that I visited wrote me a note. And they wrote it about 48 hours after the Rolling Stone thing had, had uh, crested. And they said, sir, we saw the Rolling Stone article. And uh, if you said that, we don't think you should have done that. And we don't think it was too smart to have that guy around you. <laughs> and that's the first paragraph. But, sir, we want you to know we love you, we trust you, boom, boom, boom. I mean, three privates writing a four-star doesn't happen often. And it was just so pure. Mm -hmm. And it was amazing. So, I mean, that makes up for... Yeah. You have uh, in the front row here. That's an interesting point because I think over the years we were paying more attention to our reserves, um, but in this war they've really done their equal share, so we are paying more attention. They don't live the same life because they don't live on the base and they're very much separated when they leave. Now they are they have the same programs available to them, and we've. Um, we've reached out to the communities with um, Military Child Education Coalition, which goes into the different communities to teach the communities about the military children, especially the reserve, um, the children of the reservists and the National Guard. So things like that do help. It will never be the same because we'll never have our reservists living on the military base. Um, so doing things like the MSEC programs, um, they, they are brought into the military communities as far as the um, senior level schoolings and things like that, but it'll, it, won't, it will never be the same community that it's, way. It's actually extraordinarily hard on them because the reserve structure is designed for major war. And you, you bring them, you fight World War II, and then you stop. And what we've done instead is we've gone back to the well with the same people. And they've done it selflessly, and many have volunteered for multiple. But if you think about it, try to have a civilian career where you're a salesperson and you're gone every third or fourth year and you're building relationships and it's gone. I mean, 
they are making a sacrifice, and they don't, they're not on a base with, you know, they're spread much wider geographically. Their employers, if they're lucky, are very supportive. Some are not. Uh, and so I would say they've got a tougher road to hoe, and uh, it's extraordinary how well they've done. But we're going to have to relook the whole model because I don't think we can do this again. Sir, go ahead. Sure. It, it's a very tough situation because, on the one hand, the American people wants to hear from the person on the ground. They do. They just they have this desire to hear, well, what does General McChrystal think? But I'd offer this to you. If you put General McChrystal out and you say, we want you to fight this war, to take this hill if we make it, you know, simplify it, there's only one answer General McChrystal can give because you say, can you take the hill? Can you win the war? If General McChrystal says, well, ah, this is hard, I don't know. <laughs> and the American people go, good, honest answer. And the 150,000 soldiers behind you who are trusting you go, what? <laughs> you have got to show confidence. You've got to show uh, strength. You've got to show, and you have to believe yourself. You have to make yourself believe and go forward. So it's a funny, it's a funny contradiction. You're asking a person on the one hand to be a very skeptical judge, and on the other hand, if you're too skeptical, it's self-fulfilling. So I think it puts generals in a very tough position. And so I think we need other people, politicians and others, uh, helping with that. And we've got to understand that, that challenge. Ma'am, go ahead. Um, yeah, that's a great question. Uh, my mom died when I was young, but my stepmom loves me. So, yeah, I think she went through just as much. And my brothers were, went to war and, and whatnot, too. So I actually think it's harder on mothers since you are a mother. It's certainly harder on mothers than it is probably on anybody else. But I don't know why it is. It's just a thing. Um, technology used to make it much harder. We had a situation in the first Gulf War where we lost an AC-130. And in those days, you tried to withhold until you could make sure you could contact all the families so they didn't hear about it another way. Well, what happened is other people in that unit called home and said, I'm fine. And so they heard a plane had went down, no names released, and then if you didn't get a call, then you had to think, oh, my God, I've lost my, my husband or spouse. Um, we've gotten better about that. There's so much information flows so fast now, the reality is you can't contain it very much and you just deal with it. And in some ways, we're, we've learned to deal with it. Uh, but there's still the danger that, that misinformation gets out, which tragically hurts somebody. Um, there, there are cases where misunderstandings occur because of that. But, but it's a reality. It's not bad. Thanks. Sure. Uh, in the back? I'd like to ask you about Sir, 
I'm going to give you a, a completely schizophrenic answer uh, <laughs> because I feel strongly both ways, and I'll tell you right now. I served in a volunteer army, and it has been amazingly professional, amazingly good. So for me to stand here and say I think we ought to have a draft from my personal experience would be maybe disingenuous. On the other hand, I think we ought to have a draft. I think if a nation goes to war, it shouldn't be represented solely by a professional force because it gets to be unrepresented of the population. I think if a nation decides to go to war, every town, every city needs to be at risk. You make that decision, everybody has skin in the game. And also, when you finish, those are the people you want to go back into society and affect society and that sort of thing. So I have sort of come full circle. I've enjoyed the benefits of a professional service, but I think we'd be better if we actually went to a draft these days. And we, we've got such good people, we could train them, and there'd be some loss of this incredible professionalism, but I think for the nation, it would be better for us. In the middle there? Go ahead. Sure. Can you speak to people coming home who are enlisted personnel and the jobs they receive? I would much rather hire somebody that is disciplined, who's been through a change in their life, a change in my life 100%. And I think, why aren't there programs that people know about? Why aren't there some things that say, this was... Well, I, one, we gotta fix it. Um, it's it has gotten better. Veterans unemployment's actually gotten quite a bit better, so it's it's not really demonstrably worse. But it ought to be almost zero because you're right. Every, every service member is a high school grad. They've finished something. They've accomplished something. They've been trained in something. So I mean, it ought to be minuscule. I think there are a number of factors to it that I think we have got to address. One is when the service member comes back, uh, they haven't had. Many of them have never had a job before except maybe fast food before they went in service. So they, they, they don't know the, the civilian workplace. They've never done a resume, most likely. Um, what they put on their resume when they do build out one doesn't always translate. Tank driver doesn't, you know, Atlantic doesn't have any tanks so that I know of. Uh, and so you've got to translate. As you say, a tank commander is a four, he commands four people multi-million dollar piece of equipment, maintenance, all these different things. So he's a leader. He's a technologist, all these things. So we don't do that as well. And also, some of the problem or programs we've set up to connect veterans with hiring have problems with the automated search of resumes, you know, connecting that way, the geographical linkage. You know, you want to go home. That's where most of them do. And, and people tend to enlist from smaller towns and more rural parts of America where there may not be as many jobs. So there's a bunch of challenges, but none of them are excuses because I don't believe this thing about hire vets because we owe them. Hire vets because it's an opportunity. I mean, this, this is an incredible resource, and if you don't grab them, we're just we're missing that opportunity. So, And, Paul, you know more about it than I do. Paul runs the uh, Iraq-Afghanistan Veterans Association. Did I get it right or correct me? Correct me. You know, because we got a bunch of them. We, 
Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. We have five minutes, so I want to try to get as many questions in as possible. You, sir, and then ma'am, you second. Go ahead. That's a really good point because I think everyone wrestles with it individually. I confide, I've always confided with Annie on almost everything. Um, the problem is if you can't give her context, I'm going through some particularly hard period and I can't talk to her enough or give her the classified context, it's unfair for me to just dump this thing and say I'm really frustrated with X and I can't, you know, she can't judge it. But she does a really good job of being in that. I found... Um, that you do, it's lonely. They say command is lonely. Any leadership job is lonely. I tended to have several people around me. My sar command sergeant major I had known for years and he retired and then I got ordered to Afghanistan and I called him and said, would you come off retirement? And he had a lucrative civilian job. Uh, he'd had it for 18 months and he came, came right back on active duty. If you don't have two or three people around you like that, at least I needed them, that I could literally sit down with and, and have that kind of conversation it would have been harder. I think maybe other people don't need that, but, but I definitely did, because you can't just pour your heart out to everybody. It's just not an option. <laughs> Ma'am, go ahead. One of the things I think is just bringing um, focus with the Joining Forces Initiative, and it's kind of like from the very beginning, Michelle Obama and Dr. Biden um, were espousing helping military families, but until you put a name to it, um, it, it gets somewhat ignored. By putting a name to it, then people could recognize Joining Forces, helping military um, families. Veterans get jobs, but also military spouses get jobs and um, military family initiatives. So I think it's been a tremendous help because what it's done is put military families, you know, front and center on some of their needs. And it's done things like um, with education. Uh, military families, when you start college, and for instance, I graduated from high school in Texas, so if I started college in Texas, I got in-state tuition, but the minute my father left, I lost my in-state tuition. You're putting six kids through school on a military salary, you know, it's almost impossible, but through the initiatives that we've done, um, and this was an initiative that came not through joining forces necessarily, but just with our emphasis on our military families. Most states now honor in-state tuition for all military children if you graduate from high school in that state. Or as you move around, you, I took four state histories. It's a freshman level class, but every time you moved, you had to take that state history. Now you can take one, things like that. Education, for our military spouses, another one we're really trying to work on, 
If you are a teacher, um, you have to get that teacher certification in every single state you go to, or um, a nursing license. But for our military families, it's not like you um, decide, okay, I've lived here for six or seven years, now I'm going to move. Because I know all nurses, all teachers need to get relicensed. But for military families, if you're moving every year, it's, they're making it almost impossible to work. All right, uh, last question. I feel pretty strongly uh, that when you contribute to something, you feel more strongly about it. It's the reason you care more about your kids than the kids down the street, because you are vested in those. It's the same thing I used to tell soldiers. If I made them pick up trash along a road, they will feel much more about people littering on that road. I think national service is something beyond just the military everybody ought to do. As I've described it, I'm now to the point where I think everybody ought to do it after high school for two years. And it's not what you accomplish. It's not whether you build trails or work in clinics or serve in the military. The value of that contribution is not as important as the value of what it does to you about, okay, I've contributed to the country. I feel a little bit more vested. I, I want this thing to go right. So I think it's really important that America take a look at that and and consider it. There are lots of reasons. Everybody throws up these reasons why we can't do it. And, and I'd say, I just don't buy it. We can do that, and I think the change would be dramatic to us. And so um, I, I wish we would look at it and don't try to nip at the edges and just say, give everybody an opportunity to pay their taxes if they feel like it, or an opportunity to serve. I'd, I'd, you know, a lot of things you do you don't want to do. But after somebody tells you to do them and you're forced to do them, you actually appreciate it. Um, and I think people would feel that way about national service. We appreciate this uh, conversation, General Stanley, Annie, Crystal. Thank you so much. It's very informative. Thank you.